Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The COVID pandemic thus far has killed nearly 725,000 Americans and some 4.9 million worldwide. Inflation concerns are driving jitters on world markets as COVID recedes. Airbus and Boeing release sales numbers. Boeing faces more bad news on the 787 program because of a Leonardo supplier kinetic results. Priorities for Britain's new chief of defense staff, as well as key takeaways from the NBAA and the AUSA shows, National Business Aviation Association and the Association of the United States Army uh, both had their annual meetings in person, one in Las Vegas and the other one in Washington, D.C. Joining us as they do every week to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent uh, equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Teal Group Consultancy here in Washington, D.C. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Uh, indeed. And Sash, welcome back. First absence we've had uh, in a long time, and I'll fold that elegantly into uh, an upcoming question. Uh, and before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And Rafael USA sponsored our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting in Washington, D.C. Ron, uh, the market's uh, worried uh, about inflation, uh, and uh, that was a little bit of a theme at AUSA. We talked to Elbit Systems of America CEO, Renan uh, Horowitz, who was talking about uh, you know uh, uh, higher manpower costs, higher material costs, and trying to work that uh, as an enterprise. Walk us through what was on investors' minds this week uh, and how the sector performed. Yeah, sure. If you, if you just kind of go around uh, the different you know, corners of the market, you know, WTI crude was uh, at $82. Uh, so we've seen an increase in energy prices. Um, some of that has to do with disruption and other things. Um, further, uh, natural gas prices have been on the rise. If you look at the yield on the 10-year, it's just a smidge under 1.6. So it's been, this, been trending up. Um, as you mentioned, the consumer price index year over year came out. It was up 5.4%, which was ahead of uh, what pretty much everybody was looking for. Um, if you look at the labor piece of that, that was up about 4.6% year over year. Uh, and then if you look at where um, the consensus of um, uh, the market consensus on uh, uh, economic forecast for 3Q21, folks are looking at it to be about 3.5% GDP growth, and that's you know coming down a bit. So that the fear is as we roll into next year, you're going to have uh, upward pressure on um, uh, materials, upward pressure on labor um, in slowing growth. So in some corners of the market, you've heard some investors talking about fears of stagflation, slow growth, high inflation, that kind of thing. We'll see you know, if that's ultimately what plays out. But that is you know, one of the things that's cooking around in the market. That on top of supply chain issues everywhere, right? I mean, just right. kind of across the market. I mean, it's not just microprocessors. It's just uh, everywhere there's supply chain issues. Um, interestingly enough, uh, I think that's one of the, the topics that uh, we're going to be focusing on hearing from companies in our sector. You know, how are how are those supply chain issues affecting A and D? Um, it for sure is going to have an impact, but probably less so than other sectors, because a lot of the A and D supply chains 
um, are north-south. They're not as dependent on stuff coming from uh, across the Pacific. So we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Um, and that's that's kind of where we are. So you, you had you know you, you had a mixed market. Um, if you look at the performance of the S and P, um, the S and P on the week was up about one point eight percent. The best performer in in my world this week was Embraer. It was up uh, almost five percent, and that was on the heels of uh, NBAA. We'll talk about that later. I think um, the other biz jet players, General Dynamics and Textron, they were up um, just under three percent. Uh, and then, you know, Boeing was down almost 5% on the week, but that had to do a lot with the Boeing specific issues. And then if you just want to look at sort of the balanced A&D play, that would be Raytheon Technologies. And it was roughly flat on the week. We should point out, right? I mean, we were talking about the fact that Gulfstream had become during the course of the pandemic, one of the world's leading uh, aircraft makers, right? Something you wouldn't uh, recognize in part because those who could fly private jet did fly private jet not to deal with commercial airlines. It's, it's, uh, it's, good, to, it's good to have the, that kind of disposable income. Um, and I should also point out that these inflationary concerns are a bigger problem, especially for what are called Christmas industries, right? That it could h- impact the holiday season. And there are a lot of companies that do make a lot of their revenue at that uh, very end of the year, uh, obviously, uh, during during the holidays. Sash, we're coming out of the pandemic. In fact, you and your family were uh, on travel uh, last week. Uh, congratulations again uh, and, and couldn't join us. Walk us through an air travel update and why it was so surprising what we we're hearing from Airbus and, and from Boeing, the plane makers, right? Because there's this sense we're rebounding out of this, COVID is receding, folks are starting to get back to normal. Um, that's uh, reflected in some uh, airfares. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's not really translating as, as firmly into orders. Walk us through. Yeah, okay. I mean, I think that, first of all, seen from a European perspective, uh, the, uh, the aviation recovery feels incredibly slow still compared to what you've got in the US. Uh, I mean, I've you know, never had such consistently quick um, uh, goes through major European airports as we've had, we, as we, you know, me and my family had last week. Um, very, very little in the way of traffic. We flew out of London City Airport, which is one of the most crowded, cramped, busy little airports, typically a business person's airport um, uh, to the east of London. Uh, we had a fairly late morning or mid morning flight. There were only four other flights on the board. Uh, for, you know, I mean, it's probably not for the day, but until the next bank sometime mid-late afternoon. That was remarkable. Um, Coming back to Gatwick, one of the Gatwick terminal, one of the two Gatwick terminals is still completely shut. They're just parking EasyJet aircraft there. You'll, you know, some listeners will recall Heathrow's still got um, three out of its five terminals shut. Um, So the European recovery is pretty damn slow. Um, and I think that, but you know, by comparison, the U.S. Um, had a you know had a much better week or a better week last year. Ticked up again, um, of, and um, China is the is the one that's hardest to forecast. Um, but net, uh, you know, our feeling is that it's a very very bumpy recovery, uh, or certainly has been in the last couple couple of uh, couple of months or so. Europe is by far the slowest. And it's going to be interesting, you know, as we get into calendar Q4 uh, to see what happens, because clearly business travel is not picking up quite as fast as leisure travel is. Um, and that might explain why London City Airport was uh, was so quiet by comparison. Um, and pricing here in Europe is not as strong as it is in the States. You know, I think you are absolutely at the at the leading edge of the, of the recovery. But then if you know, if we take that on to what are we seeing in you know, orders and deliveries, I mean, Airbus had their orders, announced their orders and deliveries for um, September last month, single order, 
um, interestingly, for an A319 Neo. I mean, those things are, you know, verging on rock, or, you know, unicorn in rareness. Uh, I can't imagine who would buy an A319 Neo. I must go and shake their hand sometime. Um, and interestingly, Airbus's deliveries were also were really weak last um, uh, last month. And they had 40 deliveries. That was the same as for August. Well, in August, the place is shut. Everybody's on holiday. Uh, that was the weakest, um, uh, you know, month for deliveries for about seven years. Uh, and that you know, it just makes you wonder whether there's a scheduling issue, whether some airlines are just having second or even third thoughts about when they want to receive their air- aircraft. Or is this just what happened to Airbus quite a lot of years, which is airlines leave it until the last moment in the year to take delivery. Everything gets delivered you know, as a Christmas present, frankly. Everything gets delivered in December. Airbus has had some Decembers where over 20% of their entire year output goes in a single, uh, you know, is delivered in a single month. That, that, that's also possible. But just feels a bumpy recovery to us at the moment. Richard, I want to uh, bring you uh, into the discussion to get your sort of take on uh, Airbus uh, as well as Boeing, right? I think we think Boeing reported last week and we didn't touch on that uh, so we can get an update on that. Uh, and also let us know what's happening with Southwest Airlines because this has become a misinformation mess uh, re- regarding you know where the company is and what happened. And it actually has very little, if nothing to do with vaccine mandates as some are uh, trying to portray it. Go ahead. Yeah, there's a well, there's a bunch going on here. You know, first on the Southwest mess, there's no question it was quite the black eye and blaming FAA and air traffic management uh, wasn't completely uh, correct, nor was blaming the weather. A lot of it had to do with them just trying to get things back up and running, uh, you know, after, of course, you know, the same issues that everybody else has had and the same issue that supply chains have had, basically a total collapse followed by a very rapid recovery, especially in U.S. domestic. So they're trying to get things up and running. They might not have the highest tech approach to this, Uh, You know, they were repositioning flights with pilots and whatever else. In the midst of this, of course, you have some ideologues who decide this must be about the vaccine mandate, which is a test for anybody who's had any contact with aviation knows that's complete nonsense. Gullible people might believe it. But of course, the Southwest Pilots Union came out and said, yep, no, nothing to do with us. And of course, you know, the whole point of a labor action is to make a point. So I would have thought they would have made one. And of course, there's the fact that United and the others have had vaccine mandates of some sort or another for a lot longer, not reporting any issues. And then on top of that, of course, you have the fact that it's not exactly a problem getting people. Uh, (laughs) I mean, sadly, there are still a lot of furloughed crew and uh, support folks that might change, but right now it's not an issue. So you're going to see more of this just because of the high angle of the recovery. Now, on the ordering front, um, and on the deliveries front, it was very interesting looking at Airbus's numbers. As Sash says, you know, the fourth quarter, particularly December, is such a blowout period for Airbus historically. It's hard to tell what's timing and what's a broader market comment. To me, it's, it's just hard to read too much into a month. Orders are interesting. I think we're going to be a little disappointed in the order, quote, recovery, unquote, just because, you know, there's so many jets on backlog that have been deferred that most people, most people simply don't need to place orders. So where were the expectations of orders coming from? Frankly, it was from bottom feeders and discount carriers hoping to make a point about uh, untenable market growth expectations. And normally that kicks in. And, you know, at this point in the cycle, when things are still pretty low and, you know, the, the prime sell them heavily discounted jets, but this time, that dynamic isn't in play because by all accounts, 
jetliner pricing took a real hit last year. Inflation may or may not be kicking in, as Ron points out, and uh, nobody wants to discount any further. So the usual bottom feeders aren't throwing those usual big 200 jets for Ryan here, hooray, we're saved sort of numbers into the mix at this time the way they might have done in previous uh, cycles. So, you know, I, I think things are still fine. I'm not worried, but we're not going to see the kind of uh, big headline recovery numbers that you've seen in, in, in past downturns. Ron, uh, let me bring you uh, bring you into this. Um, sort of give us a sense on what you thought uh, of the numbers, uh, and then I want to, you know, obviously we're talking about Boeing, and there's there's a little bit of Boeing news flow uh, from uh, Mark Fortner's Fortner uh, test pilot, former Boeing test pilot Mark Fortner's uh, indictment, um, as well as 787 uh, production news, and and obviously you know sort of ongoing 737 litigation. Take it take it away on the on the. Um, volume, production volume, and then we can go to the other issues. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so Boeing said they were going to deliver, um, actually Boeing said they delivered 35 uh, aircraft uh, last month. Uh, and of that 26 were 737 maxes. Um, you know, so one comment, when you look at the max deliveries, they're well behind what people thought. And, you know, one of the questions you know, I've been getting, I think everybody's been scratching their head. Why is it so slow on the, on the max deliveries? Um, and I think we all kind of forgot if Boeing, can't certificate airplanes as they come off the line. The FAA does, right? I mean, that responsibility was taken away from Boeing um, and hasn't been given back to Boeing by the FAA. So every airplane that comes off the line gets its, you know, its little card from the FAA from the FAA. Um, there's not a Boeing proxy doing it. So um, I'm certain that's a factor in, you know, gating how quickly aircraft come off, comes off, excuse me, how quickly airplanes come off the line and get get delivered on top of that, the airplanes that have to go back into service that were parked. So you got a couple of factors there. So the mystery of why 737 deliveries are kind of behind where folks thought, I think that's that's one of the key reasons. Um, when you look at 787, you know, so, you know, the, not, the news this week notwithstanding, even before that, um, you know, Boeing's piled up, we're estimating maybe 110 or so 787s. Um, now with the news that came out this week with uh, uh, the supplier, um, it's uh, MPS, Manufactured Process Specification, which is a company. Sounds like a rule. It is a rule, but it is a company. Um, <laughs> and, you know, sort of whatever. Um, it's like naming your company PMA, but that's cool. Um, they had non-conforming parts. Um, and these were, I guess, small fasteners, titanium things, that, that sort of thing. Um, that's an issue. Now, that could happen. I mean, it's happened in the past, you know, other programs, other companies, right? This isn't you know, necessarily specifically Boeing's problem, but it aggravates Boeing's problem, right? So this would be less of a problem if they were delivering 787s. It just makes that big pile of 787s even bigger, you know, so not at a great time. Now, you know, just, you know, a couple more quick comments. One, Boeing has said for a while that the 787 program is running at near zero gross margins. At some point, um, you know, when, you know, all these delays and impacts and, happen, um, that near zero gross margin has to go negative. And once it goes negative, the program's in a forward loss. Um, and for those folks out there who aren't accounting aficionados, that means they take a charge and the margins go forward on the program at zero. That doesn't mean the cash flow on the program zero, but that means they record no earnings on the program. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if that happens. I don't know if it's this quarter, next quarter, but something here. And then the second point is the longer that the program isn't delivering airplanes, um, you get back into that weird 
737 dynamic where you've got a bunch of airplanes that were supposed to be delivered, weren't delivered, and customers are running into that material adverse change clause, call it about nine months, that if you don't get the airplane delivered, you don't have to take the airplane, you can cancel it, get your money back, your deposits. Now, obviously, they're not going to do that, but they're going to want price concessions in an environment when prices are rising for everything else. Um, and that's just going to squeeze the margins on the program even, even more. So I'd keep an eye on that. Our guess is now probably three quarters of those airplanes are talking 80 to 90 of those airplanes have already triggered those clauses. So that's yet another complication that Boeing has to work itself through. Um, it's uh, uh, worth also uh, pointing out briefly, right, Leonardo DRS, uh, the North American business of Leonardo is our sponsor. Uh, and I should also point out, I think that MPS was sold by Leonardo, right? So so they don't um, uh, they don't have that business. Um, let's talk briefly. Yeah, uh, can, about... can, can, I, can I just yeah, go add, ahead. actually, that yeah. Leonardo put out quite an interesting, uh, although I'm not a million percent convinced I necessarily believe it, uh, statement, but where they basically said, um, you know, firstly, uh, MPS is a, um, uh, you know, MPS is, is, is a Boeing. I mean, they're trying to say MPS was basically selected by Boeing as part of this deal. And therefore, although they're a subcontractor, uh, they were passing, Leonardo was sort of passing through stuff that, were, that had been selected by MPS. And, and so they were saying, and therefore, we are a, we're, we're an aggrieved, uh, we're a damaged party too. It was, a, it was an interesting uh, chance, but but Leonardo having been absolutely, I mean, they lost five percent on Thursday, rebounded pretty, pretty much all of that on the Friday again. I may have used the term divestiture. I didn't mean to say that. I should say it was a former subcontractor uh, to MPS was a former subcontractor to Leonardo, uh, according to what the company has said. Uh, very quickly, Ron, and and let's go around uh, the the horn. Right, we had the interiors issue that drove the seven eighty seven. Now we have this MPS uh, uh, fastener uh, issue. Um, and then we also have the Mark Forkner, uh, Forkner uh, issue, the Boeing test pilot, who's the only person who has been indicted in the wake of the 737 uh, crashes. Uh, there's there's a sense sort of like the global financial collapse. You know, it was more than just a guy in a firm. Right. Uh, there might be something uh, bigger going on. Briefly touch on oh, both of those. There's right? always if, one rogue dealer. <laughs> there's oh Yes, exactly. It was all one rogue dealer. Exactly. <laughs> it goes back to ING, right? It was one, one uh, bearings bank, right? It was one bad apple. Um, uh, let's just quickly get your sense um, on what's next on 737. Obviously, we've got uh, some litigation that is also ongoing from uh, the families, some of which have accepted settlements on the Lion Air and the Ethiopian Air side, but some have not and are taking the company to court. Um, and then more broadly, what the company has to do to get a handle sure. on some of these subcontractor issues, right? I mean, again, it's it's sort of a multiplicity of factors that the company is dealing with. Obviously, some of these things happen and you find out about them later, but at the end, you have quality, right? I mean, you have a whole bunch of processes in this system to make sure that the thousands of parts you're installing on these airplanes aren't problematic, right? Take it away. Yeah, I mean, it. I mean, it's you know, a couple of thoughts, right? I mean, so obviously just one guy messed up the culture of the company and one guy um, caused cutbacks in R&D and so on and so forth. And one guy did write the proxy that suggested that management get their incentive comp on 50% cash or free cash flow generation. That's, that's obvious, right? Um, so, well, no, I mean, so, so, we'll, so we'll see. But I mean, if this all comes back to, right, it's sort of like if you break your leg and then you break your arm, and then you break your hand. I mean, each one of those is manageable on its own, but um, all three of them at once gets really hard. And I think that's the situation that Boeing finds themselves in now, that a company that's working on as complex products as Boeing does, 
and as you know, a complex company as Boeing is across all the products they do across all the end markets, um, they just have a overwhelming number of issues right now, um, of which the majority of them are self-inflicted. Not all, but the majority are. Uh, and it's just going to take time and they have to work through them. Um, and there's hard decisions that have to get made. I mean, everything from uh, the state of their balance sheet and stuff we've talked about before in terms of new products and you know where they're competitively the landscape in the narrow body market. Um, their stronghold has been the wide body market. So this 787 thing is really kind of hitting them where they're strongest, arguably. Um, so it's just a lot of things that have to be addressed. Um, that Sash, your take, uh, Richard, then yours, and then I'd like to uh, shift over and, and get everybody's uh, NBAA and AUSA uh, takes. Go ahead, Sash. I think Ron put that very well. I just add one other point, though, or one other view, which is that when it comes to negotiating with suppliers or dealing with suppliers and even dealing with airlines at the moment, Boeing doesn't have a lot of cards to play. Um, it's you know, threatening with suppliers or we'll take business away from you. And suppliers will say, well, look, we're, we're running on, on vapor at the moment. Uh, you know, most of your production lines don't seem to, you know, aren't from where we as a supplier are looking, aren't actually working. So you've not got a great deal to take away from us. If you're an airline and, um, you know, Boeing is trying to uh, get, uh, you know, get pricing out of you or whatever else, you know, airlines just say, look, you're not delivering on any of your programs. Um, material, um, uh, you know, adverse clauses apply to pretty much every single one of our orders. The ball's in our court. I, it's very, very hard, I think, for Boeing to get to, to work their way out of this one because they've got such a weak position across a wide range of, uh, you know, wide range of sort of the constituent, the, the levers they would otherwise pull. Contrast that with Airbus, where last year, frankly, they were pretty brutal with, airlines and leasing companies and they said you take the damn aircraft you've got on order if you don't want the aircraft you've got on order when they were on order then you know you have to you have to pay something for that airbus was really very very tough and i don't think a supplier would want to call airbus's bluff at the moment because airbus has got a better volume story a more credible manufacturing uh, process story than than boeing has um so I think at the moment, you know, suppliers will worry that Boeing might not be around in 15, 20, 15 years or so, and that they really shouldn't be over-dependent on them. Um, and they will, will worry that they don't want to, to make Airbus cross just in case Airbus is the uh, survivor. I realize that's, that's radical, but I do think that Boeing's, Boeing's negotiating position for both suppliers and customers is astonishingly weak at the moment. Richard? Your, your sense on all this, including uh, the indictment, and we don't have to spend too much more time on that because I think uh, Ron has, has sort of framed that well. But, you know, just, just to get your take before we go to NBAA and AUSA. Yeah, just to follow up on what Sash said, of course, uh, strong agreement. You know, this is sort of the multi-generational, multi-dimensional incompetence of the McNerney years coming home. You know, the idea of crushing suppliers through partnership for poverty or partnership for success 1.0 and 2.0 and then expecting them to be in just fine fettle in the event of a downturn that was really daft and and of course it leaves absolutely no wiggle room as such as to pressure them downward now whereas airbus by comparison wasn't too bad and does have that wiggle room in a crisis to to do what it can 
Um, the Forkier thing, yeah, aside from the monstrous injustice, I mean, the guy may or may not be guilty, but the idea that he takes all the heat and goes to jail forever, that's just bizarre. And uh, frankly, the most truth of anyone came from Tim Clark uh, the past week or two. Uh, at IATA, he said, you know, look, this comes, as we've been saying, it comes down to a cultural issue, starting with the board. And this is very clearly uh, huge. And instead of doing anything, well, there's a five minute hate session against Mark Forkner per 1984. It's just bizarre and frankly, extremely unproductive. With that, any any other points anybody has on commercial or anything else before we go to NBAA and AUSA going once, going twice, going three times? Sold. Uh, Ron, you were in person in uh, sunny Las Vegas, uh, where uh, NBAA was uh, in person. Um, give us your sense on the key takeaways from uh, that show. Obviously, you drove performance of the business uh, jet aviation. Um, and also give us your sense on AUSA as well. And then I uh, want to get uh, Richard's uh, take on, on both of those. Sure. Um, so I'll focus a little bit more on NBAA. Um, yeah, it was a interesting show in that um, the size of the actual show, its footprint was about half the normal size. Uh, and the attendance in that footprint looked to be about half. So maybe a quarter of the people showed up, a third in, as in the past, um, out at the static. So those who haven't been there, there's, you know, there's a, the, in the convention center, there's stuff. And then out at the Henderson airport, they've got, usually have aircraft and things. Um, it was pretty light on aircraft as well. Uh, most of the brokers who tend to bring airplanes that they're trying to sell did not. Uh, why? Because they don't have any. Um, that was one of the big themes from the show. There are no airplanes. Uh, anything that is sort of sellable re in reasonable shape is gone. That um, the market right now is really quite hot. Um, and there's some examples. I spoke to one broker uh, who actually did have a Phenom 300, a 10 year old one, uh, and they were asking a little over $7 million for it. Um, that airplane was probably bought for that price 10 years ago. Um, so it's, you know, you're, you're in a situation where the supply of available for sale, you know, late model airplanes, there just are none. Um, and then two, you, you, when you talk to the OEMs across the board, with the exception of Gulfstream, because they weren't there, they had their shindig, you know, 10 days before, um, they, they're sold out. I mean, pretty much everybody across the board is sold out to um, 2023. Um, you know, one of the things that made a big, big impression on me, um, uh, more so than usual, right? I mean, we all go to air shows, we all walk around mock-ups of airplanes. We've all been in it. It's like, oh, nice overhead bin, you know, table, seat, chair, and the whole nine yards. Oh, look, you can stand up in it. Um, the, the one that made a big impression on me um, was the Dassault 10X. Um, that, that's, they raised the bar with that. Um, so just to be clear, um, I think that airplane is going to have a, a big impact in the market. Uh, and, and most likely, the probably the one that has to fight the hardest against that will be uh, Bombardier with uh, Global 7500. Um, it looks like the Gulfstream product line is, is pretty defensible, um, but I think they're going to have to work at it. Uh, but that, that 10X looks like it's going to be a spectacular aircraft. So, you know, you know kudos to the Falcon Jet uh, folks. Um, but I think that's where it was. I mean, so it's the market is, 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 is hot. There's not much inventory. And then the other thing is, which is interesting, back to the supply chain thing, the OEs can't really ramp. Um, so one of the themes that did come up was who's going to spoil the party, right? Can, can everybody get pricing or are we just going to start jacking up production rates? Uh, nobody can, right? Because they just physically can't because the supply chain can't support it at the moment. So it looks like into 22, maybe even into 23, 
rates will be more muted than the end market demand, which would suggest across the industry, we should see some pricing. Um, and why, uh, why did you say what you said about Dusso and why you think it's such a world beater? Sash, uh, who was on the launch uh, call, uh, said that it was an extremely impressive airplane after having looked at it in person, what reinforces that image uh, or, or that perception? Yeah, so it's, it's pretty rare. I mean, you can probably think about it in your own career when you've got on to aircraft, um, commercial or defense, and just been like, wow, this is really something different. Um, that was my sense with the 10X. It's very roomy. It has a lot of light on it. It's got 38 windows. Uh, the fuselage is almost, let me call it eight to 10 inches wider than anything else on the market. You get a sense when you're on it that you're almost not on an airplane. They wanted it to feel like being in a room, you know, this sort of, you know, seamless transition from your home to your office to your plane. Um, and I think they hit, they, they hit it. I mean, they right on the mark. Um, so, so we'll see. And yeah, there's a mock-up, right? I mean, they still have to make the airplane, so on and so forth. Um, but I mean, if they get even close to what that mock-up is offering, it's, it's a whole other level. I mean, they raise the bar on everyone on that aircraft. And that's not to say there won't be competitive responses, so on and so forth, but, but they really did. Um, I mean, I'm ju ju just to follow yeah, up. Go ahead, Sash. And, and I'm, I'm really interested because, you know, we thought that the specifications when they launched it were very impressive. You know, Ron having seen, you know, even seeing the mock-up in the flesh, I mean, that's, so to speak, that, that's pretty impressive. But the hardest thing to do with a new aircraft is to get the fuselage diameter right. You can generally squeeze some range. I mean, this is a horrible sweeping generalization, but you can generally squeeze some range from somewhere, albeit at a cost. You can quite often get length in terms of the fuselage and some, but actually to, to get the fuselage diameter right and to, 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 you know, to maximize that fuselage diameter and hence the, the cabin diameter, there are some incredible trade-offs that you often have to make. So if they can do that, uh, and, you know, that, that, that's very, very hard. Um, that's a hard competitive advantage to, uh, for somebody else to overthrow because it <laughs> tends to involve throwing hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars at, it, at, at, at the redesign. I, I, I hope that's not, I hope that doesn't offend your, your aerodynamics uh, sensitivities, Ron. No, not at all. I mean, at the one point I would add, I mean, that you're, you're dead on right, 100%. Um, you know, is you know there was an expectation that I think before uh, the world kind of found out what it was or is uh, that it would be some sort of a stretch of the six x. It's not. It's a different fuselage diameter than the six x. So when you look at what Dassault has done with the six x and the ten x, they have a new baseline for their products for the next thirty years, and it's an it's a it's an aggressive, very competitive baseline on what on what they're offering. And, you know, there's, there's an old adage in the, the business aviation industry, the cabin sells the plane. Um, and, you know, if that's even close to being true, they will do quite well with the 10X. I would just uh, point out uh, that the last time that Dessa launched an all new large jet, you know, other than the, the 6X and of course its various permutations, they got the wing wrong. You know, I mean, the 7X was problematic and that's what led to a bit of a range shortfall that's how that thing sprouted wingless so you know it's not always easy to just say we're going to build the biggest cabin ever it's going to be amazing and all we have to do is get the right power on it well, et voila 7500 nautical miles 
it's it's not always easy. Richard, talk to us a little bit about some of your takeaways from AUSA. Um, we were there all uh, three days, had a lot of interesting conversations, including with the chief of staff of the United States Army, uh, as well as others. Our coverage is going to roll out over the next couple of weeks. Um, you know, w- walk us through what you thought were the most interesting elements of the show. I mean, I think it's really admirable that when the Army puts its mind to doing anything, how the entire organization can kind of click in behind it. And this sense that they're working smarter, that they're moving methodically, they're talking about uh, reducing logistical streams, they're changing the training. Uh, You know, I I mean, I I always think it's impressive whenever the Army gets that bit in its teeth that it can really, really move. Um, And that's, you know, certainly what I saw. We talked to Wally Rugen, who is the uh, future vertical lift cross-functional team lead at the United States Army Futures Command, Uh, certainly a mouthful. And it was interesting to get his takes uh, on both the the FLORA and the FARA programs. He couldn't say much about FLORA. But from your standpoint, and I should point out, Wright Bell sponsors this program and is not a disinterested observer uh, in uh, both of these programs, uh, competing as they are against, you know, Boeing um, on, on FARA and Boeing and Sikorsky on FLORA. You know, give us your sense of what some of your takeaways were at the show. Yeah, you know, the most interesting aspect of it was that, well, the, the site of the gallows really focuses the mind. And, you know, the Army had enjoyed a massive budget share run up back during, well, the great years of OCO and the great years of the Iraq and Afghanistan surges. I think they peaked out at something like 34 percent with OCO taken into account. Um, there's only one way to go from there. Right. <laughs> uh, and not with everything pivoting away from places where it's all about helicopters, nation building, counterinsurgency, Central Asia, et cetera, et cetera, towards the Pacific, where, frankly, the Army's rotorcraft force structure has uh, somewhere between zero and uh, marginal value. Um, it's pretty clear they've recognized all of these dynamics. And that's why, for the first time, I actually came away thinking, you know, this FDL thing, it has a chance because it's the only way. You know, previously I'd sort of seen it as well. They're going to focus on lift rather than range and speed. And boy, there's such a big trade off associated with doing what the Marines did and focusing on speed and range rather than lift. And, you know, I had frankly never really thought much of FDL's chances. That, and of course, the fact to employ another cliche that 80% of Army new rotorcraft programs give the other 20% a really bad name, you know, just a series of disasters. I think this time it could be for real, especially FARA, because if you're going to be relevant in the Pacific, you need something with these capabilities. I'm not saying that they're going to get, you know, the same several thousand FARAs that they have with Blackhawks. But on the other hand, I think some kind of buy needs to be guaranteed just to just to make the army relevant in the Pacific theater. Farah, I don't know. There's been a lot of pushback, a lot of uncertainty. You know, historically, that's been kind of a low cost segment and OH-58s and whatever else than the Arapaho. And that never went anywhere. And now something far more expensive. And I'm not really sure why this requirement isn't taken over by remotely piloted systems connected with Apaches. And it seems like the Army is about to buy even more Apache Guardians. But, you know, if there's one system, and again, I, I guess not, uh, it keeps coming back to the Pacific, it's probably far, and there the V-280 does seem to have a pretty strong advantage as the one system that's capable of doing the job with not a lot of risk uh, at that, in that, that size class. 
Um, I uh, I should uh, point out right that the none other than the chief of staff of the army, General McConville, um, master aviator extraordinaire, um, you know, made the case that that Flora is about uh, range and speed. Uh, ultimately, uh, being uh, you know absolutely vital for the future missions, it has to do. General Rugen uh, did make a case, right, that that FARA is still much earlier in its gestation process in some ways, and they're still defining and looking at requirements and a whole bunch of uh, stuff as they go through, uh, you know, certainly the prototype development phase, and that his view and the Army's view is that it's it's not just. Um, you know, it's going to carry a lot of unmanned, sub, you know, unmanned systems uh, and 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 lots of mini, you know, micro drones and things like that. I actually love the line, you know, to affect enemy behaviors, uh, which which I thought was a, a terrific line. But they're looking at kinetic and non-kinetic effects. Um, and indeed, I think the most fascinating part of the conversation on and off the record, when you talk to General Rugen or General Kaufman or anybody else, uh, Ross Kaufman, who does the future combat vehicles, is really how these systems are going to be on the future battle network, uh, which, which I think is, is most interesting. Sash, let's go to you. Um, uh, you know, we, we end up talking quite a lot about commercial news uh, on this program. And then there is some important military news happening in the United Kingdom. Um, and the most important one of which, you know, is the selection of a Navy man. Um, uh, a first sea Lord, Mike uh, Boyce was uh, t- some 20 years ago. Who, who was a first sea lord who became chief of defense staff, now uh, Admiral Sir Tony Radican, um, the 103rd first sea lord, if I uh, am not mistaken, is going to uh, succeed Sir Nick Carter uh, as CDS. Uh, we had uh, none other than the 100th first sea lord, Admiral Sir George Zambellis, uh, join us and talk to us a little bit about Tony Radican and the challenges ahead. From your standpoint, why is Tony Radican the right man at the right time and what do his priorities need to be? Uh, for a start, he's the right man at the right time because he isn't a soldier. And, um, uh, you know, his predecessor, uh, the, the current chief of the defence staff, General Sir Nick Carter, who ran the army first as chief of the general staff and then as chief of the defence staff, has, in my opinion, I've thought quite long and hard about how to say this, but, you know, the job, when you are at the top, you have a responsibility to leave your organization in at least as good a state as you found it, if not better. Nick Carter failed to do that at the army and he failed to do that um, as chief of the chief of the defense staff. His successor as head of the army, who was clearly one of the front runners for this, General Mark Carlton Smith, followed in that very, very worrying um, you know, process of failure. And the army, despite, you know, the army has always said, uh, has certainly said in the last 20 years, we should be running defense because we are the service that's doing all the hard stuff, all the difficult stuff. And by the way, we are the most numerous service, which is an astonishing, uh, you know, just we, we have more personnel, therefore we should be head of the defense staff. Um, and when the war, particularly in Afghanistan, was going on, there was a very, very pernicious view that this is, or this was the war. It was the only thing that mattered in uh, British defence. And hence, because the war in Afghanistan was predominantly a, a ground war with everybody else helping, um, then soldiers should be running defence at, at the very, very top. Um, now, we lost that war. So you could argue that, in fact, we lost the previous one as well in Iraq. Uh, you can argue that when you're, you know, your recent playing record is, is played to, lost to, that makes it very hard then to select another soldier to run defence. And um, but if we sort of think about this 
you know, more positively, which I think we've got to, the Navy probably better represents two things. One, what Britain wants to do and where Britain wants to be in the world. And if you think about the two things that have uh, uh, that the that UK defence have done in the last year or so that have uh, you know genuinely had a um, uh, you know been noticed globally. One has been Carrier Strike Group Twenty One. You know we've sent an aircraft carrier group, admittedly with not very many aircraft, but that will change at, at some stage as well. Round the world into the Pacific, operated with allies, did what it said on the tin. That was something in planning for five eight years, and um, they're still out there and. You know, that's been a very impressive capability that the UK has not had for the previous 20 years. The other, which politicians say was the reason why Admiral Tony, uh, Sir Tony Radikin ultimately edged past Mark Colton Smith and possibly General Sir Patrick Sanders as well, was the AUKUS deal. And the degree to which the AUKUS deal uh, with, with the US and Australia um, is very, very focused uh upon naval issues and particularly on submarines. Remember, you know, the, the issue of Australia getting a nuclear submarine capability and the French losing the contract to supply 12 conventional submarines. And there is a feeling that that is something that is transformational for the UK in terms of our relationship with uh, other like-minded uh, countries uh, in the Pacific. And the fact that Radikin took a significant role in that in terms of, you know, he's effectively committed the Royal Navy to support the AUKUS deal. If that means diverting, and I'm now hypothesizing wildly, but if that means diverting the seventh um, astute submarine uh, out of Barrow to Australia for, you know, training and learning about the role, the Royal Navy will bear the brunt of that in terms of uh, extra patrols for the other submarines and so forth. But he's clearly up to that. And um, final point I'd make, um, and this comes back to what state did these various very senior servicemen leave their services in? Um, the Army's record on equipment management, buying it and then looking after it, is horrible. It is simply, it's awful. I mean, throughout our Iraq and Afghanistan, the view was, buy the stuff we need today. We can throw it away in three years' time. We don't need to worry about equipment maintenance, obsolescence for management, anything else. Uh, as a taxpayer, I find that incredibly offensive. Um, actually, as a soldier, I find that really offensive. You should look after your kit. Um, there is a culture in the army that does not like thinking about the hard stuff in terms of materiel. If you're a sailor or if you're an airman, the equipment you operate is fundamental to your role. You tend to be better at looking after that. So all of the soldiers, one way or another, but particular General Carter and General um, uh, Carlton Smith, have on their hands responsibility for failed army uh, equipment programs, of which Ajax is just the most recent, and for an army which is in a horrible state in terms of what it can deploy into the field at the moment. And there's a um, an issue at the moment of whether the British Army can actually stand up a full brigade for the uh, NATO Very High Readiness Joint Task Force um, in about three years' time. If it can't, that's because Carlton Smith and Carter failed to do their job and look after the kit, on which basis you really shouldn't let a, a soldier near the top job until they have mended their own service. Let me ask uh, two uh, clarifying questions, right? People who know Sir Nick Carter see an innovator just like they see Tony Radican uh, as an innovator. Where did Sir Nick get it wrong? How does Sir Tony have to get it right? 
in terms of priorities going forward? Uh, where Senet got it wrong was in focusing on what was originally called Army 2020, became Army 2025, you know, maybe Army 2030 by now. There's a horrible truism at the British Army that once you call a piece of equipment, by the, by the date it is supposed to come into service, you're, you are committing it, it to failure. You've doomed yeah. it. Um, and, you know, Army 2020, please. Um, but specifically where he got it wrong was by focusing on new technology, saying that was what mattered and not looking after the stuff that the taxpayer had bought for him over the previous 20 years. And if I contrast how the British Army has looked after or rather failed to look after all of its wheeled and tracked equipment compared to how the US has, give you an example, the Warrior fighting vehicle, which in the 1980s and 1990s was as good as it gets. I mean, really a fantastic mechanized infantry fighting vehicle up there with Bradley, different specifications in terms of armor and so forth, but really very, very good. Was never upgraded until the upgrade that has just been canceled because it was far too expensive and was doomed to failure. I look at that, compare it with the Bradley, identical age of the fleet, but which is now four, getting on for five major planned upgrades. Um, and the US Army just looked after the Bradley and focused on spending money on the installed base and making sure that it was all, it was typically in as good a state as possible. The British Army winged it. And, and it's that culture of not looking after equipment and just thinking, wow, we could buy something cheaper that came along. And, um, you know, General Carter, frankly, he only, or to some extent, all he did was inherit a, you know, a very damaging attitude that a lot of his predecessors had. But uh, ultimately, buck stops, buck stops with him, buck stops with uh, uh, Chief of the Defence Staff. What does um, uh, Tony Radican have to do? I think he, ha I mean, he's got the big, the big change now is he's now got to think as a tri-service uh, chief rather than worrying about his Navy. Um, and, that, and he's got to uh, give genuine um, cross-service advice to the Prime Minister rather than this is what the Navy, uh, you know, would like or, or can do. But but every chief of the defence staff that uh, steps up to the job has got that. You know, they, they, they've got to change their role uh, quite dramatically. But, you know, at least he hasn't left the Navy in a worse state than, than when he joined it. Quite the opposite. Arguably, the Navy is actually, at the moment, the most important service in terms of the UK's diplomatic position, diplomatic role. Uh, and uh, I should point out HMS Queen Elizabeth is uh, still in the Pacific. The Pacific Future Forum uh, is happening uh, this coming week aboard HMS Prince of Wales. So two of the big deck aircraft carriers are uh, out there. And I uh, have to say that the Royal Navy has a great uh, tradition of actually maintaining ships. It's amazing to me that I go aboard Type 23s and they look um, extremely well cared for, even though they're ships that are being run very, very hard uh, across the force. And before we wrap up, our sympathies go uh, to the family of Sir David uh, Ames, who is the member of parliament who was killed, uh, sadly, this year, uh, just this week, uh, in a tragic uh, knife attack that's been de uh, deemed uh, a terror uh, incident. Everybody, thanks very, very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back on again next week. In the meantime, have a great week. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks, Vago. Talk to you next week. Yeah, thanks very much, Lee, Vago. Thanks, Vago, and a great week to all. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. 
Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.